Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg with you, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and Stephanie Burke. Well, uh, we will get right into it because we did make our guest wait uh, a little bit longer than planned. Mark Anthony, the psychic lawyer, is a practicing medium who not only communicates with spirits, he is also a successful attorney, licensed to practice law in Florida, Washington, D.C., and before the United States Supreme Court. Mark graduated from Mercer Law School with honors, which included the study of law at Oxford University in England. He has also studied mediumship in England at the Arthur Finley College for the Advancement of Psychic Science. Mark Anthony is a published author of the bestseller Never Letting Go, which is the definitive guide to healing grief with help from the other side. So joining us on the line, we have our guest tonight, Mark Anthony, the psychic lawyer. Good evening, Mark. How are you? I'm doing great, Tim. Um, Sorry about the technical difficulty, but everything is as it should be. And to all the listeners... Hey, thanks for tuning in. Absolutely. I, I apologize for my frustration there at the beginning of the show, but at least the phone line is working and we can hear you, which is a po- positive side uh, for us, for sure. So, uh, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, you know, you're right. You know, things, things happen for a reason, and, and, uh, and Stephanie's the one that's been warning us. My co-host, Stephanie Burke, is a, a psychic medium herself, and she warned us last week, to expect technical problems for the next couple of weeks. Yes, I did. And, Mercury retrograde. And she was right. So <laughs> we can always just blame the blame the cosmos for everything instead of uh, instead of the technical problems here. So well, uh, I mean, look at the miraculous technology. Okay, I mean, we're we're talking to each other in real time. We're hundreds of miles apart. This is beaming up to satellites, you know, in orbit of the Earth. And oh my gosh, we're annoyed if a problem happens. You know, <laughs> we come we so, come to depend I mean, so much on it. Yeah, I know. Think about a hundred years ago, nineteen fourteen. Okay, that's when World War One started. The idea of having a conversation with somebody on the other side of the country, much less on the other side of the planet, that was being circulated and uh, through a series of of satellites orbiting Earth was was science fiction, was fantasy. And now this is our reality. So, you know, we get some technical glitches, and we just have to work around it. I mean, it's funny when, when the, the power goes out, people are freaking out. And in a pre-electrical society, when the sun went down, you pretty much you went to sleep. And right. when the sun came up, that's when you woke up. And that actually happened the other morning. I woke up early. I was getting ready for, for work. The power went out. And I said, you know, there was a time when, when this happened. You know, people would just be like, well... You know, that's that's just, uh, you know, everyday life. But now we're so connected to the world. Uh, we're so connected to our our technical devices. You know, if our cell phone starts dying, we get into a panic. We, we don't know what to do without that little thing in our hand. Oh, remember maps? I mean, you know, I, I travel. <laughs> and I'm always on book tours. And thank God for GPS because, you know, we're trying to read a map and drive and, and all this. It's so nice to, to to turn this thing on, and it says, in 400 feet, take a U-turn. In 300 feet, you know, it's it's really wonderful. <laughs> and and uh, what's even better about it, too, is as, you know, as our devices get smarter, the people are getting dumber. So <laughs> it's funny because... Yeah, there, there is that. Um, you know, I was, I was lecturing to a high school class not all that long ago, and I said, well, who do you think our three greatest presidents were? And I'm getting glazed looks. I go, come on. And somebody goes, the dude that got shot. Whoa. I said, well, we've had four presidents assassinated. Which dude are you referring to? Glazed look. Then another kid raised his hand. 
Um, the one in the wheelchair. I go, and which one would that be? Glaze look. I go, could it be Franklin Delano Roosevelt? Huh? And then I look at some of the African-American students. I said, who do you think would be the most important president? Staring at me. I said, which president freed the slaves? Staring at me. I go, Abraham Lincoln? I mean, it was amazing. Everyone just gave me these glazed looks. And we wonder... We wonder why China has surpassed the U.S. as the number one economy in the world. China, yeah, they have a billion people, but they have more honor students than we have students. And it, it, it's, it's, you know, this country really needs to, to take a good hard look at it. We can't have everything that we do decided for us by a device probably made in China. Right. Well, now, having psychic abilities uh, that, such as you do, does that give you any kind of insight into uh, where society is going? I mean, are you seeing kind of a, a futurist trend here that, that maybe the common person uh, isn't really picking up on? That, that's a difficult question. Um, uh, you know, I, I have a background not only in law but also in in uh, political science and I theorized um, when I was in college that the United States was going to become a more oppressive and repressed society and that at the, the then Soviet Union was going to fall apart and become a more liberal society and that what we're going to see is more incursions into our private life through um, through technology. So technology is a double-edged sword. And uh, it, it appears that I was right. It appears that I was right. And what I'm seeing now is a lot of the new age people, a lot of my fellow psychics, they talk about that we're in the age of Aquarius now, which is this great spiritual awakening. And, you know, everyone's becoming more um, in tune and all that. And, and to some extent, that's true. But what we're also seeing is when you get um, an organization like the ISIL-ISIS thing in the Middle East, what you're, you're seeing are a lot of people, and that includes um, members of the Tea Party, and, and I don't want to get political because, you know, I, I, I will happily crash on both the Democrats and Republicans sure. equally, because um, I think they both have failed the United States miserably uh, with their petty squabbling and their, their ideology over, you know, what's best for the country. But you're seeing repressed religions um, having this this surge. I mean, when, when someone like ISIS wants to take people back to the 6th and 7th century, where people are beheaded and stoned to death for the most ridiculous of infractions and not believing in a primitive version of their, their religion, and then when you see people in this country saying, well, the Bible says this, so we have to pass laws that say that, um, I think that, that there is a clash going on. So while there is a spiritual awakening or rather an awareness on one hand, I think it's being counterbalanced by a lot of primitive fear-based uh, religious superstitious nonsense. Right, absolutely, and that, I mean that's we we've always condemned other other belief systems and other countries for doing that when we've been doing it ourselves uh, from oh, the sure. time that we uh, started becoming a country. Uh, well. 
just to take a step back in, in your own life, now you said, of course, uh, you are the psychic lawyer and you do practice law, uh, but you also study political science. We can get into the psychic side of things and your whole background in that. I want to know what led you down the path of wanting to get into law and, and to study politics. I always found it fascinating. I love history. I love history. And um, if you think about it, history is largely a political conflict. And and the, the definition of politics is the allocation of resources. I mean, that in its most basic sense. And you, when you look at history, there are certain trends and there's resurgences. And there there is an extent, you know, you have to learn from history or you're condemned to repeat it. Um, I had originally thought about going into the clergy when I was um, when I was young, but because I was raised Catholic. But then I decided too many rules, too many restrictions, and I didn't agree with a lot of the doctrine. Um, growing up in a, a family where my parents were psychics, and um, and and they didn't practice it in the commercial sense. It was just you know part of who they were. So it didn't really appeal to me to go into a dogmatic, uh, fear-based, restrictive uh, religious life, although I've always been drawn to the spiritual. And law really appealed to me because I like, uh, I like the logic and I like the evidence, because as a medium, it's all about evidence, producing evidence. As an attorney, it's all about evidence. And, and evidence answers questions, and evidence provides uh, knowledge which leads to understanding, which leads to the resolution of issues, whether it's in a courtroom or whether it's someone coping with the loss of a loved one. So I found that uh, law um, encompassed all of those those facets, uh, and so that's why uh, it was very appealing to me. Was that at odds at all uh, with the way that you grew up and, and having these abilities, which, uh, again, we can we can get into, but when you are having insight into into people and into their thoughts and, and, and into uh, kind of just the way that, you know, you can kind of see how things are going to play out for them a little bit. You have this this sense of, of uh, what, what could be coming in the future. Does that put anything at odds with the words that are coming out of their mouths, uh, whether it be in law or whether it be in politics? Um, a very, very good question. Well, first off, I, I don't read minds and right, I'm not right. a fortune teller and, and, and I'm not, not, not um, just, you know, Criticizing you, I, I want people to understand. I'm a psychic medium, and I communicate with with spirits, with people who have uh, crossed over. Um, however, all all mediums also have psychic ability, which gives us insights into um, the energy of a person, place, or thing. And and I, I have um, accurately picked up on future events in in many many occasions. But that's not not my specialization or my forte. But I, I don't find being a, a, a psychic medium and an attorney being at odds at all. First off, they both deal with evidence. Secondly, they're both about helping people. And third, being a psychic medium uh, gives me insights. It, it gives me a skill set. I've been accused of having an unfair advantage. But I don't look at it that way. I look at it as this is part of my skill set. I know other people in the legal profession that have... Um, um, skills, uh, and, and some of them are not so positive. I mean, I know a lot of people who are just ruthless, and they will crush someone. I, I know criminal defense attorneys that will tear apart a child on the witness stand, and to me that's reprehensible. I mean, it's just disgusting. But they're doing their job, and you know that's their skill set. Um, I've never 
I, I certainly know how to take apart people on the witness stand, but destroying somebody on the witness stand, um, that goes beyond advocacy, and that just gets into a form of bullying, and I don't like that. Yeah, I mean, I can understand how a lot of people would have uh, just a, a skepticism about being able to keep a balance of those. Uh, but also, I mean, it must have been a great deal of work on your own part to be able to, to, how, to how to make your skill set work in harmony with each other, too. I mean, it must have been a lot of internal struggle on your own. You know, I, when I was a prosecutor, was when I got out of law school, my first job was working as a prosecutor. And it's amazing. Some people don't know what a prosecutor is. A prosecutor works for the state. And when people are arrested, we're the attorneys that have to bring the criminal charges against them and uh, prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they're they're guilty. But that's not all that a prosecutor does. We have a lot of other type of duties, like when uh, prisoners are arrested, that to be brought before a judge within 24 hours so the judge can inform them what they're arrested for, and they plead guilty or not guilty, and most of them plead not guilty, and then their case gets set. So at first appearances, you're getting the folks that have just been freshly arrested. And what we would get is a stack of police reports and we didn't know what anyone was charged with because this is all like really new stuff. And you know, we had to be there because by law you got to be there and say, oh, well, the state wants a bond, or the state will agree to a bond, or or we don't want this person released, or whatever, depending on what they're charged with. And they they bring the prisoners in, and I would look at them and I go, all right, that one um, is child molester, that one's drunk driver, that one's a drug dealer, that one's a wife beater, that one's a thief. And my colleagues were like, how do you know that? So they would play this game, like, all right, Mark, what are they charged with? And when they bring someone up, I would say what they're charged with, and I was like, I was right, like ninety five percent of the time. Wow. And you know, my colleagues are like, how do you know that? You know, and because when you look at folks who've been arrested and they spent all night in jail, I mean, nobody looks fresh. <laughs> has a kind of a grungy, worn-out look. Uh, a lot of times you can tell the alcoholics because they're just like, you know, <laughs> I mean, you can tell when someone's like super hungover. But, but for a lot of them, and I, I just had a sense for it. So it can give me insights. Now, on a one-on-one -on -one basis, when clients come in, I can generally tell when, when um, people are not giving me the whole story. Um, I mean, I could go on uh, for, for hours with, with uh, shocking and funny stories on, on that vein. But um, it, it's all about trusting your instincts, trusting your intuition. And you know, Tim, we all have intuition, and we all have the ability to have a psychic experience. That does not necessarily mean everyone's a psychic. So it's all about trusting yourself, trusting your feelings. Some people are just better at this than others. Mm -hmm. I mean... Some people are better athletes. Some people are better musicians, uh, you know, mathematicians, and so on and so forth. Well, I also think, too, that um, w with people who do have those skills and those abilities, uh, sometimes people can get overconfident in their abilities, too. You know, uh, I've seen plenty. I cover athletes for a living, and I've seen plenty of athletes who, you know, get overconfident in those abilities, too. So you need to be able to, to know your own limitations and, and know your own uh, just – Know where that where your own line has to be, uh, to to be able to to separate those things. So that, that's a very good point, Tim. Humility is the correct assessment of oneself. We're seeing recently with the NFL with all these guys that are you know uh, committing domestic violence and child abuse. Um, you know, I mean, I like I like sports. Um, you know, I watch sports, but. You see these athletes that can barely construct a sentence, 
they're coddled, they're, they're whisked through college, and then they get these contracts and are making millions of dollars because they're really good at throwing or catching a ball or running really fast. And granted, that is a skill, but it's not like any of these guys are going to come up with a cure for cancer. Mm-hmm. Okay? And whereas, um, with very few exception, the, our brain trust, our intellectuals, are struggling to get a grant to get through college. I mean, to me, I think we'd be better off putting uh, more money into the brain trust of this country than people that can chase a ball. Um, but, you know, who wants to go and watch a bunch of kids at a spelling bee, even though they're brilliant, when they can go watch kids play baseball? So it's also a matter of priority. And so now what we're seeing is, because these people have been coddled so much and treated like they're all very special, now they're thinking that the rules don't apply to them. They can beat their wives or abuse their children or carry on in public you know, with, with no repercussions. And now it's being brought to light. And perhaps there needs to be a reassessment on, on how some of these things are done. I think we're going to have to, as a society, kind of just uh, reset on our feelings on professional athletes. I mean, Charles Barkley warned us decades ago that they shouldn't be role models, and I think too many people ignored that call and, and thought that it was just Charles being Charles, but he was right. You know, you can't put all your faith in, in these type of people because they they don't have the same out they don't have a normal outlook and i'm sure that you deal with a lot of folks uh in terms of in in your work in law you know a lot of people who don't really understand the implications of their actions uh and that's something that i think applies to a lot of people whether they commit a crime or whether they just you know go through life with kind of a very self-centered attitude they don't realize that uh, there is something greater beyond just themselves I, I, I agree with that um, a lot of people they, they, they have the sense of entitlement and you don't have to be an athlete to do that you can be a spoiled brat and do that right. okay or you could be a sociopath um, you know, when we tend to think of sociopaths, we think of the evil, cold-blooded kill, like Dexter, okay? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, uh, for those of you who ever watched the show Dexter, he's a serial killer, but we're supposed to like him because he only kills other evil people. Um, and it was a very interesting, uh, very interesting series because it was delving into all that is deep and dark of a, uh, of a person and what determines what is good and what is evil. And... So, so you know, you, you can look at the things that way, but, but someone like Bernie Madoff was a, a full-blown sociopath, and people invested in his company billions of dollars. In other words, he was a financial planner who was deciding what people, what was, you know, he was an investment banker, except all of the statements were, were phony and made up. He kept all the money himself. Um, people, a lot of senior citizens, uh, went completely bankrupt because of him. And the thing about a sociopath is when told of their plight and their suffering, he treated them with contempt. And so you do get people who are sociopaths who are not the weirdo coming through your window with a hatchet at 3 in the morning. They are the one wearing the Armani suit sitting across from you at council table with the gleam in their eye and all smiling and all that, but they're absolutely ruthless people. And and so, you know, you, you come into contact with those, and we've all come into contact with sociopaths. Let me tell you something, and you'll know it when they're done with you, um, provided you survive the experience. 
Oh, I've, I've come in contact with more than a few uh, over the years, uh, <laughs> especially working in the paranormal field. Uh, you tend to run into quite a oh, bit uh, of them. Oh, I bet. I bet. Um, it's interesting um, when you come into contact with people who have died and they were sociopaths in this life, and then they come through, and when a spirit communicates, they bring their personality, their memories, uh, likes and dislikes with them. And the very fascinating thing is the ones that were sociopaths, now that they're on the other side, they're no longer, quote-unquote, sociopaths, but they are aware of what they did and what their behavior has inflicted on people. And it, and it raises an interesting question, Tim, and, and uh, not that I want to get all, all philosophical, but everything that happens appears to happen for some reason or some purpose. We may not always be aware of the full impact of that. And so that begs the question, do, do these evil energies, these dark energies, come amongst us for a reason? And it appears that they do. And, and people say, well, well, what's the reason? It's like, well, I don't know, okay? But it does appear that everybody in our life and our lives has a part to play for good or for ill. And the negative things that happen to us are lessons and experiences that apparently we have to learn from. And let me tell you, learning and growth is often a very, very painful um, process or as the result of pain. We tend to grow and evolve uh, as, as people more in response to negativity than we do when everything is wonderful because when everything is wonderful you don't have any incentive to grow or to change or to adapt mm-hmm. and and I do think that uh, a lot of the times when we are faced with these struggles it, it's almost like it's a kick in the pants for growth too it's not just a challenge that comes out there there's there's a reason why at that point in time you have to face that adversity it's not just for the overall big picture it's just that particular moment there's a lesson that you need to learn i i i, I believe that as well um i remember reading something about in life there are no such thing as mistakes and, you know and I, I went to catholic school and let me tell you if you made a mistake they let you know it but this was more of a Buddhist philosophy, and it said there is nothing in life uh, that is a mistake. There are, however, lessons. And the tricky thing or the difficult thing about lessons is they'll be repeated until they're learned. So when, when I'd have a, um, a client for drunk driving come in, I would tell them that. I said, you know, you didn't, you didn't make a mistake, but you were presented with a lesson. And lessons are repeated until they're learned. And think about, like I, I practice in Florida. A first DUI is really tough, but chances are you're not going to go to jail, provided you haven't hurt anybody. Um, you're going to lose your license, but you can get a permit after a period of time. The second DUI, you lose your license for 10 years. The third DUI is a felony. Okay, And with the second and third DUIs, there's mandatory prison or jail time, and then prison time, especially when it becomes a felony. So talk about a lesson being repeated until it's learned, <laughs> okay? Oh, and, and it just intensifies. And so you see that a lot in the criminal system. Most people that get a DUI, okay, a lot of people have been in the situation where they've been at a restaurant or a bar and they had a couple drinks or socializing, and, and they had you know one too much, too many, and they get they get arrested on the way home. But then there's people who um, drink all the time and get behind the wheel of the car. And let me tell you, that's deadly. You would not give an eight-year-old a loaded Glock. Mm-hmm. So why should 
someone under the influence of alcohol be given a set of car keys and a 2,000-pound bullet that they get behind the wheel of. Right. And, it, again, when you're learning from these, these lessons, and you had said, you know, there's no such thing as a mistake. I, I'm a little bit of a word nerd, and I like to look at the etymology of words. And if you look at a, a mistake, uh, uh, something taken in error, then it, it's, you look at it as a chance to, uh, you know, it's one take. So you have a chance to do it again. It's never the ultimate final answer. And I think that, you know, you having the abilities that you have, you know, you can see probably clearer than others that everything that happens in this life is not a final answer, that there is uh, more answers to be discovered later on. Oh, uh, absolutely. And if you think about, like, all the great discoveries, let's say some scientific discoveries, most of the time, the first um, attempt at something was was a failure, and because it was a failure, then the scientists refined the process and started thinking outside of the box with their approach until they got it right. Um, and and that's the whole nature. And human beings tend to like to be challenged, and they like to be presented with things that they have to overcome. And it, it's like, okay, let's take something as basic as air conditioning. All right. We all go into air conditioning buildings, you know, pretty much every day or at some point of our life. If you've ever been in the movies, you've been in an air-conditioned uh, building. Well, why did air conditioning come about? It's because without it, life was absolutely miserable. It was hot. It was humid. Um, it was it was just incredibly uncomfortable. So that created an adverse environment. And then somebody decided that well, there must be a way that we can control the climate on the inside of a building and so they start pumping cold air in and then humidity and condensation build up and so now they have to figure a way to create a dehumidifier and and so it's through all these mistakes and trial and error and adversity that you come up with air conditioning you know and and it's amazing i mean and it's another thing that that uh, it's like the fact that we're talking in real time which is bouncing off a whole system of satellites what you think think scientists got satellites right the first time right <laughs> well, <it's, yeah>. it's, <laughs> certainly not yeah and it's certainly uh as we grow and we learn and as we're growing and learning from the technical issues that we had here tonight we seem to have been recovering from them uh we've we've worked on them a little bit during the show so it seems like everything's going so hopefully people can hear us on spooky tv at spookysouthcoast.com and if you want to join in the conversation as we talk to Mark Anthony the psychic lawyer you can do so using the hashtag spooky live uh, on Twitter, it will show up in the chat box on Spooky TV. And we can also take your calls as well, 508-996-0500, But because this is Mark's first appearance with us, we have a lot of things that we want to cover. We won't be taking any calls for people looking for readings, but anybody that has a question about Mark's work, about his abilities, and uh, I have lots of questions that I want to talk with him about. And uh, I've heard you, Mark, on other programs, and it's always interesting when you hear uh, somebody, for me, whenever we have anybody on the show that has abilities, I always have to go back to the very beginning. And Stephanie, you know this because I've asked you these questions uh, over the years, but I always want to go back to the very beginning of how this came about because it's fascinating to me when somebody has these abilities and how it comes to them. And I know that you're, you actually come from a family that has these abilities. Yes. This appears to be a genetic predisposition in my family and on both sides of the family, which is unusual because um, 
It's not unusual for people to say, oh, yeah, this ran on my dad's or my mom's side of the family, but it's unusual when it runs on both sides of the family. And I've tracked it back to at least about 115, 120 years on both sides. So when I was about four, I started talking to all these people. And, and, and it's not an odd thing for a child to have invisible friends, except when the invisible friends tend to be relatives who died. Mm-hmm. And my parents saw what was going on, and they were very understanding, and they didn't chastise me because they could see them too. And I remember my um, my dad one day, I, uh, I was about five, and he, and he got really mad at me, though. And he said, stop that, Mark. Stop that. People who see people that aren't there get taken away. They'll think you're crazy. And it really scared me. And I remember my mom saying to my dad, go, what are you doing? And then he said, I'm sorry, Mark. And he, I was like shaking. I was just so frightened by, you know, because my dad was always a real loving, real tender guy and um, for a Navy SEAL. And, and, uh, but, um, but as I got older, I realized why he got so upset. And what it was, his sister, uh, Marjorie, was an amazingly gifted psychic and medium. She could see spirits, and she could foretell the future. And um, one day in the early 19, I guess it was in the 50s, 1950s, um, her husband was about to go to work, and she begged him not to go to work. In fact, she threw a fit, and he was like, fine. And uh, he, he said, I'll stay home. Well, he was a machinist in in um, in a steel company in Pennsylvania, and he worked in this machine shop. Anyway, that day a, a crane was lifting thousands of pounds of steel beams, and the the cable snapped and it flattened the it, it landed on the machine shop, flattening like a pancake, killing everybody in it. And had he been at work, he would have been there. So of course it you know gets all over. You think this guy would have said to his wife, "Gee, thank you for um, your gift and saving my life." But he was a fundamentalist Christian, and he saw her ability as evil and weird. And so not long after that, um, literally, this ambulance came to their house. These two men in white coats came out. They grabbed her pulled her out of her house, put her in a straitjacket. He had her committed to a mental institution where she was subjected to electroshock therapy over a period of six months where they'd electroshock her, then stick her in ice water. And when she got out, she was like a shadow of what she'd once been. And never again did she ever exhibit any psychic abilities, or if she did, she kept them to herself. Mm. And I finally got this story out of my dad not that long ago, and he said, that's why I got so mad at you that that time. He goes, I I was just so afraid that something like that might happen to you. And so did that thought in your own... Well, you said that you only found that out recently? Uh, Yes. I always heard about my Aunt Marjorie. Um, There was rumors, oh, she was crazy. Yeah, she was committed to a mental institution. And because uh, this all happened a long, long time before I, I was born, and I started making some inquiries, and 
And Marjorie didn't sound crazy to me. She sounded really sharp. She was an avid reader. She was an intellectual, and and she was um, uh, real. She used to ride horses, and she was like super athletic. She was just a really well-rounded person. But she had these abilities, and unfortunately, she married a man who did not accept or would not accept them. And um, so, so it was treated back then as schizophrenia. Um, and there's a big difference between schizophrenia, which you do get hallucinations, auditory and verbal. Um, the auditory usually like to commit violent acts and impulsive things. But if your child is talking about beautiful things and images and forecasting future events with accuracy, that's not schizophrenia. That's mediumship. So, so um, my dad was just always, you know, careful about let's not talk about this out of the house. Because we can talk about it to ourselves, but but don't tell other people. So, at what point did you start telling other people? Well, mom had a different philosophy. <laughs> okay. um, um, mom, and, and I write this in my book, Never Letting Go. Um, my mother was a very gregarious, outgoing, intelligent, uh, artistic woman, and it was kind of like you know having a combination of Elizabeth Taylor, Shirley MacLaine. Ginger Rogers, and as my dad said, Joe Lewis <laughs> kind of rolled into one, and uh, she was, um, and Lucille Ball, um, and she used to talk about her abilities to people, and she particularly liked talking to me about it. In fact, we'd go out to lunch and stuff, but you know, as a, in a teenager and get a little bit older, and we'd look at people's auras. She'd show me how to see auras, and she'd say, see the outline around them and the lights around them, and I'd say, yeah, I can see that. And so we we always talked about it, and she said, you know, Mark, you've got this gift, and you've got to decide what you're going to do with it. And so as I started getting older, it intensified to the point where I started working with it. And I'd go to these psychic development classes, and with with all due respect and humility um, and, and respect towards my, my classmates, people would be like, okay, I'm getting the color blue. And they go, Mark, what are you getting? Okay, I'm getting a grandmother coming through, and she's showing me this, 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 and this, and she's talking about this song and this. And, and people are going, my God, that's my grandmother. That was her favorite song. That's how she died. <laughs> wow. And... I remember the uh, the instructor in one of the classes, he said, Mark, I want you to, to come over on Saturday. So I went over to his house on Saturday. I said, so what's up? He said, how long have you been doing this? And I said, well, I've been in your class two weeks. He said, he goes, I've never seen anything like this. He goes, you're functioning on a level of someone's been doing this like 30 years. And I'm like, really? He goes, don't give me that really. He goes, no. I said, it's just that. I don't know any different. You right, know, I meet yeah. people, I see things around them, and I thought everybody did that, and then I start saying, "Oh, so that's what that is." You know, and mom would, you know, mom would tell me, you know, these things too. So, so it got to the point where it became a calling, and that that may sound corny to some folks, and and I know I was talking about my um, my aunt's uh, father, who was the the fundamentalist. I don't have a problem with born again Christians. I don't have a problem with Muslims or Wiccans or Hindus or anybody, okay? Anybody that, that is genuine and, and using their faith as a conduit for love, I have no problem with. And I've talked to friends of mine that are born-again Christians, and I said, I've got this calling where I need to be using that. And, and their take is, well, that's very much what it's like when I got the calling 
to to be reborn in my acceptance of Christ. So whether or not what I experienced in that metamorphosis was a quote-unquote born-again experience or not, the parallels are definitely there. Um, I have this ability. It is, it is a good thing. It is a positive thing. And that's, that's how I use it. Um, I've never once ever considered using it for any type of nefarious or, or evil purposes. Um, I know there's people out there that do things like that. But to me, that is, that's, that's being a traitor in a lot of ways. If you're given a, a gift, you have to use it to, to help people find resolution and healing, not as a means for um, trying to win the lottery or personal manipulation and, and things like that, although I have met people that try to do those things. And um, they're usually pretty miserable folks. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people uh, look at it as, you know, this is something I can do to become an entertainer or something I can do to make money, and they're not realizing, you know, the what effect they're having on people. I mean, I've seen, and, and Stephanie, I've seen you give readings to folks before, and I've seen that look in their eyes when it makes a difference for them, and how can you see that look and think profit instead of healing? A lot of people do. I don't understand it myself, um, but I grew up very similar to how Mark did, where it wasn't a choice. It was part of you. Um, I feel like a lot of people nowadays, it is a choice for them. They wake up, they realize, I can take a class and make money. Mm -hmm. And they see people as dollar signs rather than hurt and bereavement and grief. And, you know, I, I help whoever I can. It doesn't matter about money or anything like that. I mean, you've seen me. I've turned down things left and right just because I don't feel like it's the right situation. Sure. Um, it's not interesting to me to go in front of a crowd of people and um, count how many people are there just to see how much they paid per ticket. It's it's not in my makeup, but some people do it. Some people are into that. And, and that must be tough for you, Mark, because you know, you're battling the stigma against lawyers <laughs> at the same time as battling the stigma against psychics and mediums. Yeah, um, I, I've practiced criminal defense and personal injury, um, and I'm a psychic medium. So if you threw in divorce work, <laughs> I'd be on a lot of people's hit list. Um, but uh, the way I look at it is um, a lot of people hate attorneys, and I can understand why. But the fact is, Lawyers in, um, take on representing people who have gotten themselves into situations or have caused situations. So we're extensions of other people's objectives, anger, and predicaments. So, um, you know, we're kind of a, a part of society. And there's this T-shirt and this uh, bumper sticker. It's a quote from the uh, Shakespeare play Richard III. And it says, first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. And a lot of people think that's funny. If you actually read the play, what it is, Richard III was a horrible tyrant. And when he seized control of the English throne, he said, basically, the thing standing between me and totalitarian control are lawyers. So the first thing we do is kill all the lawyers. So it takes on a whole new meaning when you start looking at it like that. Mm -hmm. Okay? I mean, let's say you get arrested for a crime in Iran. 
chances are you're going to be tried, convicted, and executed all within a couple days um, because they have a much different legal system, if you can even call it a legal system, in, in a place like that. So, so, yeah, there is a stigma against attorneys, but the fact is I would hate to live in a country where, where sometimes the only thing between you and the crushing power of the state is an attorney. Absolutely. And now we will be taking a break coming up in about five minutes for the news. Uh, and coming up in the next hour, I definitely want to get more into the discussion about your book, uh, Never Letting Go, which you can find out more about by going to Mark's website, neverlettinggo.com. And we'll find out more about that uh, as well as a number of other topics. Uh, now, one question that I will ask you, and, and this is something that I know Stephanie is interested in, is you studied at the Arthur Finley Institute. When, when did that opportunity come about for you? Oh, gosh. Um, well, um, it was over a period of several years. I, I did several programs with them, and um, it's, it's really fascinating to, um, to work with them because the British have been studying mediumship for the better part of 150 years, and actually longer than that because it was very clandestine, but it was in the middle of the 19th century when mediumship kind of became very fashionable both in uh, Great Britain and in the United States. And the British are very clinical about it, and they have a very heavy emphasis on evidence, which is what appealed to me as an attorney. It's all about evidence. I'm not an airy-fairy psychic that says, oh, there's angels around you in a past life. You're Joan of Arc, which is why you're afraid of ashtrays, and, and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Um, and there are people that do those type of readings, and many of them are legitimate. But the type of readings I do have to be backed up by verifiable facts and evidence, and that's what appealed to me about uh, about their methodology. And so that gives you the uh, the opportunity to study with them, and and also studying law at Oxford as well. Uh, you get to see the differences between our society and the way that we look at both professions and, and, and the way that uh, the British do. And it gives you a chance to have a little bit more of a worldly view of something that people are often very uh, parochial about. It does. And, and for, for all the listeners, if you or your, your children ever get the opportunity to study abroad, um, do it. Because it really does. I mean, Tim, you hit the nail on the head. It gives you a different perspective um, I've been fortunate. I, I've studied at Oxford, studied Arthur Finley when I was an undergrad. I was um, um, I, I studied with the Consortium for International Education, where I did uh, study in the Soviet Union and in uh, then communist Eastern Europe. I mean, these these were life enriching enriching experiences. And then um, on my own, I've studied Buddhism in Japan, in Thailand. Um, um, I met with shamans in the Amazon and in the, the Andes, um, and a lot of the uh, the voodoo beliefs in the Caribbean. I mean, it's just I've kind of been on this whole worldwide quest uh, on on studying differing views on the afterlife. So anytime you can study abroad to, and, and, and increase your worldview, do it. It, you know, yeah, it's expensive, but it comes down to this. When you have the money, you don't have the time. When you have the time, you don't have the money. So just mm -hmm. do it. 
All right, do it. And, and Today, oh, my new oh, death. Well, my computer firing off. What would you say? Mercury retrograde again? Yeah, that one scared me a little bit. I don't know if you saw me jump. Yeah, that happens from time <laughs> to time. Uh, so uh, we are going to take a break for the news, but when we come back on the other side, we will talk more with our guest, Mark Anthony, the psychic lawyer. And you can check out his website, neverlettinggo.com, during the break. It's linked up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. That's where you can find out more about Mark, about his work, and you can find out more about his book. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit in the next hour about that. We're also going to talk about the cycle that people get into with crime and and how just their own spiritual health can have an effect on, on the decisions that they make. So we'll get into all of that and more. Plus, we'll take your calls if you have any questions for Mark at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. And you can also join in the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag SpookyLive. If you go to Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com, you can see and hear the show there. And you can also join in the Twitter conversation there as well, again, using the hashtag Spooky Live. So we are going to take a break for the news, but when we come back on the other side, more discussion with our guest, Mark Anthony, more of your thoughts as well, more Spooky South Coast. It's the Halloween season. It's October. It's the time when we try to bring you some of the most intriguing topics in the paranormal. And just a quick teaser, next week will be our annual Bridgewater Triangle episode. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment. Number two of Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, along with Stephanie Burke and the silent assassin, Matt Costa. Feeling a lot better here at the start of hour number two because things are actually working now the way they're supposed to be working. Don't jinx it. I know. Knock on wood. Don't talk about it. But, uh, yeah. So... Hopefully, we just keep rolling on with that. Uh, I want to just share very quickly. I want to say thank you to everybody that came out to the premiere of Ghost Stalkers Monday night uh, in New York City. It was pretty awesome to drive down to New York. My dad and I went down, took a took a day trip. We drove down. We partied. We grabbed some dinner at the Carnegie Deli. I saw the pictures on uh, Instagram. The, yeah. the Woody Allen sandwich? Yeah, yeah oh my I was God. jealous. That was ridiculous. It's a $25 sandwich. But it looked well worth it. It so is well worth it. What's in it? It was corned beef and pastrami. Okay. Pile high. Was, I didn't see... Was there bread? There was little tiny pieces of rye bread. It was probably right. regular size rye bread, but it just looked like croutons. It looked delicious. Compared to all that meat. It was. It was How fantastic. How a sandwich like that? That's all I kept wondering. I actually knife and forked it. Did you? I had to, yeah. But it was it was outstanding. It was cool being there, and it was great hanging out with uh, Nick Roth, the executive producer of Ghost Stalkers, John Tenney, David Roundtree, everybody involved in the production, and everybody from uh, the Destination American Network. I'm sorry, Chad Lindbergh couldn't be with us because he was filming another project. But uh, it was just great to have everybody in the same room and to see the final product start to finish, the first episode, which will air, debuts October 19th at 10 p.m., on Destination America. So everybody out there, you can get involved by using the hashtag ghost, stalk, ghost stalkers on social media to talk about it. And we've been putting up some pictures and some clips and everything. So, uh, again, if you haven't heard the show the last month or so, but <laughs> that is the show that I've been working on as the writer and researcher. So definitely check it out. Help us out. And, uh, and really, let's create a little friendly rivalry here because the Ghost Asylum show mm-hmm. has been... 
knocking it out of the park in some key demographics, ratings-wise. I've seen that. And so let's see if Ghost Stalkers can keep that going and, and, and top it even more. I hope so. I'm excited to watch it. Only one more week. One more week. A, a week from this Sunday, you'll be able to check it out for yourself. And I've already set my DVR for all the episodes. <laughs> I'm very excited. That's awesome. Because I've only seen the first one. I haven't seen the rest of them. I don't even know what order they're going to run in. Hmm. But I can tell you that some of the places that we went to, and, and hearing the stories from Dave mm-hmm. and John when we were in New York, and them telling me about some of the things, uh, Justin, the story producer, and telling me some of the stories from being on location and, and the things that they found out, and the, the things that they discovered, and the activity that was happening, I just I can't wait to see it, and I can't wait for everybody else to see it as well. So it's going to be exciting. Either way, at the very least, it'll be entertaining. That's all that matters. That's that's what it's all about. Are we going to throw like a little? TV premiere party heroes. I don't think so. I think I'm going to be if sitting DVR, there. We can have it anytime. That's true. <laughs> I think we'll do that because I think while it's on live, I think I'll be tweeting. On, I'll be having my laptop open with the tweet deck. Yeah. You know, responding to all the tweets and everything. It was and and thank you by the way to the New York Times for posting a review on their website and in the paper of Ghost Stalkers. Yeah, it was it was kind of more like the the TV critics' perspective on the paranormal and paranormal television, but. It, it's hey, still there. To have oh, something that we're involved in mentioned in the New York Times, that's that's it's really pretty cool. good stuff. Matt, you can come to my house and watch it since All I right, know cool. you won't watch it otherwise. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I forget. You don't <laughs> no, have TV. I don't, I don't have the, well, you yeah. can come over my house, too. <laughs> I wasn't saying that you can, couldn't come over. You know you're welcome anytime. It. I can tweet. But there's a Brendan at my house. That, so. But then I'd, I'd kind of rather have the two of them watching the show than, than doing what they do together. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get back into the discussion with our guest tonight, Mark Anthony, the psychic lawyer. Uh, Again, he's a practicing medium who communicates with spirits, and he's also a very successful attorney. You can check out his website, neverlettinggo.com, which is linked up on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com if you want to check that out. It's also the title of his book, and you can pick it up uh, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And and Mark, tell us a little bit about the process of of putting together this book, uh, because it seems like this is... Uh, the culmination of, of a lot of things that you've learned over the years. It, it is. Um, I, I have to jump in. And you, when you said you were at Carnegie's Deli, Carnegie's Deli in New York City, yes, um, you had the Danny Briscoe sandwich. Is, is that what is that what they're calling? That's it? what that is. Yeah, that, um, that yeah that that Woody Allen made famous because it's the um, pastrami and the corned beef together. Because I was in New York um, like two months ago, and I'm going to be there. Uh, on um, Saturday, October 25th at the Namaste Bookstore uh, at 85th Avenue and 14th Street um, doing a gallery reading and book signing for Never Letting Go. So I am going on tour of New York, and I remember going to Carnegie's Deli. It's just awesome. And, yeah, the sandwiches are expensive, but it's like enough food to feed four people. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I know. They, you know how, like, in, in uh, the old Flintstones cartoon when they go – to the the drive-in, and they bring out that giant like brontosaurus <laughs> ribs, and it makes their you know their car fun. It's kind of like what it's like. They bring this enormous sandwich, and I'm looking at the gun. I'm a big guy, okay. I'm six foot one, you know, and I'm looking at that gun. That's more food than I eat in like five days. Right, I, so, I struggle um, to finish half. <laughs> I know it's 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 amazing, but um, but uh, um, and, and let me tell you something. Doing the Never Letting Go book tour has just been. One of the greatest experiences of my life. I'm getting to go all over the country and meet incredible people. But 
the thing that, that ties everyone together, no matter who they are, is the fact that a loved one is going to die. And that's why I wrote Never Letting Go. And like you said, Tim, it's a culmination of a lot of things that I've learned. Uh, I've, I've traveled all over the world. I've studied um, all the major religions. And no matter what, nothing prepares you for death. And Never Letting Go came about after my mom passed. In fact, um, uh, last week it was uh, the eighth anniversary of, of her passing. And I was crushed. People say, well, you're a medium. That shouldn't have bothered you that much. Well, <laughs> um, mediums are people, too. Sure. And when your mom dies, that's your mom. And, yeah, I can spiritually, I, I can connect with her, but it's not like I can go over her house and sit down and have lunch or, or you know, we can go for a walk together or just, you know, talk uh, the way we did. And so I started spiraling downward into depression, and I decided that I needed to go to some grief counseling. So I went to the local Catholic church, being a nice pseudo-Catholic boy, <laughs> and... Indonesia, the most populous Muslim country. Go ahead. No, sorry, that was my my computer firing off again. Okay, uh, and so I'm in the grief support group, and you know, we sit in a big circle, and you talk about what's going on. Well, after about a month, I realized I was recovering a lot quicker than the other folks because I was seeing everybody's dead relatives. <laughs> okay, and so I would be saying, well, if you're Son was here. He would want you probably to know this, and they, you know, the woman would be looking at me. And if your wife who's passed uh, would want you to know this, and so they're they're looking at me like, oh my gosh. Well, the facilitator of the group, she was from Ireland, and she knew what was going on. And on a break one time, she goes, she comes up to me, and she goes, you know, Mark, you can't be doing this. I said, what? You're seeing spirits. I go, but we're in a Catholic church. Isn't that kind of what we do? <laughs> and she said, you know what I mean? You can't be, like, talking about people's dead relatives because I knew you can see them. <laughs> so, so I said, all right, all right, I won't, I won't do anymore. And then a couple weeks later, I was in a grocery store, and this little tiny lady walks up to me. She must have been almost 90 years old, and I remembered her from the group. Really, really sweet lady. And she says, hi, Mark. And she took me by the hand. I said, hey, how you doing? I gave her a hug. And she looked up at me, and she said, would you come back to the group? You made us feel better. Hmm. And it was at that point I realized I needed to write a book about how you can heal from grief with help from the other side. And so the premise, if you will, of never letting go, it isn't that it's it's about you need to let go of the sorrow and the anguish that's caused by the death of a loved one. Because let's face it, those are anchors around your neck that are always going to drag you down, always going to make you feel miserable and guilty and full of remorse and regret. I mean, losing a loved one is just, it's just crushing. But you must never let go of the love for the person who died. And, and this is where I disagree with a lot of psychologists and grief counselors, so you need to let go. No, don't let go of the love for the person. But what you do let go of is the pain associated with their death. And let me tell you, this, this book is resonating with people worldwide. 
I mean, I get emails uh, from and letters from Australia, India, Singapore, the UK, all over the U.S. from people that said they were going to commit suicide because they were so depressed from the death of a loved one until they read Never Letting Go. And it made them think that, wow, I don't have to, I, I don't have to be crushed by this grief. So, so Never Letting Go is a guide on the journey through grief. It's inspirational because it produces evidence for the afterlife. It teaches people how to recognize when your loved one in spirit is near, and it's healing with messages of love and hope from the other side. Well, and I, I think that uh, that approach, it, it makes perfect sense to me, and I'm surprised that you know it took this long for somebody to be able to, to, to get the word out there uh, in that regard, because you're right, you don't want to let the person and, and the memories and the love for them go, uh, but it's all of the things that we retain, we the living, that we hold on to that is is kind of unnecessary. And again, I understand your point uh, of, you know, yes, you can still make connections with your mom and people can still make connections with people who have passed on but they're not going to be able to ex- enjoy their uh, and experience them in the same way that they could have before and i think that that that's not on them that's on us and that's the way that we're processing the grief incorrectly well and, and that's exactly correct tim and that's why in never letting go i wrote a chapter um about going from a physical to a spiritual relationship what I discovered in my own grief is what was crushing me is that I missed the physicality of mom's presence. Mm-hmm. You know, because my mom was a psychic medium, and we lived in the same town, and it was no big deal for, for me to go over her house and, and sit there and, and have lunch or dinner with her. And, you know, so, and she was also not just my mom, but my best friend. You know, and and we we just always had a good time, and with the whole psychic connection, it was you know, it was just really kind of cool. But, so what I realized is that well, my relationship with mom has not disintegrated; it is now transformed from one of a physical to one of a spiritual nature. And so when I connect with mom now, it brings me great joy and happiness. And so the objective on the journey through grief is accepting the reality of the death, and through that acceptance that can then lead to inner peace. And inner peace doesn't mean you're doing somersaults and jumping for joy and, you know, throwing parties. It means that you have accepted that the physical presence of someone you loved so much is no longer there. And I find a lot of people, especially, and and, and I'm sure, it's Stephanie, right? You're you're, you're the other co-host? Yes. Okay. Stephanie, you probably find this too, the people that are psychic junkies. Okay. They want a reading every week. Right. And I won't do that. Uh, I tell people that you've got to wait at least six months before another reading because you've got to progress through your grief. And there are some people who try to use connection with a loved one through a medium as a means of hanging on to the physical aspect of the person. And so that's why they constantly want readings. And I, I know a number of people uh, that that 
they they become psychic junkies. They won't make a decision in their life unless they call a psychic. They, mm-hmm. I mean, a friend of mine, he's a medium, and he said, "Dear God, I had the client call me up and say she wanted a reading because she wants to get a new hairstyle and wants to ask her mom's spirit if it's okay to do that." All right, that's not healing from your grief. That's hanging on to the physicality, right. and that in and of itself is is now becoming an issue and a problem. So, so for all the listeners. If you go to a medium or a psychic uh, and that person starts telling you, oh, there's a curse upon you, there's a negative energy associated with you, you need to start coming to me once a week or twice a week or three times a week and uh, you know, we'll get this curse uh, or negative energy away, turn and run. <laughs> awesome advice. <laughs> right, Stephanie? Awesome advice. I always tell them if they offer you a candle for $600, get up and run as fast as you can. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> oh, I've got a candle to return. <laughs> it's the craziest thing, but there are so many people, even in our, our area right here, that have been in the newspaper that have been arrested. It's just insanity. I don't get it, but people actually buy into it. Well, you know, they're giving us a bad name. It's like yes. you know, people hate lawyers because you get some real sourpuss, miserable, manipulative, you know, cutthroat, bloodthirsty, right. vampiric SOBs. If I could throw in a few more adjectives, I would. <laughs> um, that ruin it for the good lawyers, okay? Because not all of us are just monsters. Okay, we got to go to bat for our client, but that doesn't mean you have to rip somebody in two. But the people that do that ruin it for, for the rest of us. Okay, so these frauds, these charlatans, and these predators, um, you know, you keep seeing these TV shows constantly, psychic frauds. Well, how about doing something on some legitimate psychics? Right. You know, and how we do help people. And, and you do see that on, on, on some programs, mm-hmm. but the psychic scam. Well, yeah. There's charlatans out there, but it's important for, for people like Stephanie and, and me to be out there saying, yeah, we're legit, but I don't want, if you want another reading with me, you're going to have to wait. I'm not going to say, yes, come next week and bring $700. You know, <laughs> No, 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 no. Yep. That is a predator. That's not a psychic. I tell people all the time, um, I'm not a circus act. I am not a sideshow freak. Um, I will not perform for you. <laughs> it's only a matter of, you know, when the message is needed. It's not on a weekly basis. It's not on a daily basis. It's I've had to cut off friendships or, you know, even acquaintances just for the sole reason of how did you get my phone number and these, these text messages mm. and these emails that are coming in, like, Consistently, I, I need this, I need this, I need this, and they become dependent on it. And there are people out there that, that prey on that, and it's crazy to me. It's sad. It, it, it is. It's, well, it's despicable. Uh, Mark, I mean, in, in the work that you do, you, you've probably gotten to see things from the from the spiritual perspective from from uh, the perspective of those on the other side when you go off to your great reward, the last thing you want is to, for somebody here bothering you all the time for every little thing, right? These people are supposed to be in a better place, and, and they don't want to keep getting called back for every little reason. Well, and that's assuming that somebody who's going to tell you that you need to come to them five times a week at you know <laughs> six hundred mm. bucks a pop yeah. are number one legitimate mediums, and number two actually getting the contact. Because what I've found is in, in a reading, I tell people. Okay, it's very likely and most likely in, in a one-on-one reading, more than one person is going to come through. 
and we generally have one or two folks that we really want to talk to. But it is possible that person may not come through. And I've had people saying, well, where the hell is he? I want you to get him here. It's like, look, yep. I'm not a bouncer. I don't reach into heaven and go, you, yo, come here. Yo. <laughs> you know, um, you can put it out there and say, hey, you know, Aunt Martha, come through. But that doesn't mean that person's going to. And spirits are not stupid. In fact, I think they're a lot smarter than we are. And if they realize that someone's being, um, you know, uh, manipulated, chances are they will not come through. That's very true. Just to, to take a step back for a moment uh, to what we were talking about a few moments ago, and I, I don't mean to belittle the loss that you might have suffered earlier in your life uh, with other people passing, but when your mom was no longer with us, did that have a, a change for you in how you operate and, and how you um, how you work as a medium? Did that change your perspective to, to have that same level of grief, that same connection of grief that the people who have been coming to you for readings had experienced? Did it change who you were as a psychic and as a medium? Um, that's a very good question. I think that the death of a loved one, and particularly when it's a very significant loss, it, it can change you in a lot of ways. And we all have paths to go down. And a lot of people turn to alcohol and drugs and predatorial behaviors because it's an acting out and it's an avoidance. Or you can embrace, endure, and get through the grieving process, and that will lead you to becoming a more understanding and compassionate person. So I would say that having an overwhelming loss made me not only sympathize with people but now empathize with them, mm -hmm. uh, understanding what they're feeling. Um, according to grief therapists, the, the most painful loss is the death of a child. And I would absolutely 10 million times agree with that because the loss of a child is the most insidious loss. It upsets nature. You know, the parent is supposed to go before the child. And, and you know, this, this little person that you have raised and loved and cherished is taken from you for from for you know whatever reason and, and in whatever manner is something that people don't I don't think they recover from they learn to live with it. The second most painful loss is um, by according to grief therapists is the loss of a mother. If you think about it, you know I mean a loss of a dad is is a terrible thing too. I mean I'm not downplaying that, but in most instances it's the mom that has the tightest bond with the kids. It's, mm -hmm. She's the one that fixed your meals, got you off to school, was up with you when you were sick, and, and there's a bond. And plus, I think the fact that, you know, um, the, the bond between a mother and child is, is like none other. So, so when, when I, I saw this firsthand, I realized I have to do something. And then um, what happened, and, and, and it was not long after the experience I had with the little lady that came to me in the grocery store and said, would you come back to the group? I was meditating, and there I saw Mom. And she said, you have been given the gift of mediumship so you would not be crushed by grief, but now you must help those who are suffering with theirs. And it all became very clear to me, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And so that's why I'm doing this. And, and it seems like you've also made the connection, too, that uh, and a lot of times uh, your work in law and, and seeing the criminal mind and, and how it 
how it operates and how it comes to be that grief often has a, a serious impact on, on, on the creation of, of criminal activity. Yes, it does. I've seen how grief leads to crime, which leads to grief. In other words, unresolved grieving issues with a child or a young, uh, like a teenager or even a young adult, um, not everyone is raised in the you know ideal family where if you lose a family member or a f- close friend or even a family pet, okay, so, um, someone very close to you, um, that this is discussed and, and you're loved and you're guided through this. There's a lot of broken homes, dysfunctional families where, oh, don't think about it. Here, don't worry about it. So um, the, the child's grieving is not resolved properly. And this then, you, you can't out-smoke, out-snort, out-sex, out-drink uh, your grief. And as much as you try to suppress it, it's going to emerge in other ways. Violence, rage, alcoholism, drug addiction. So what happens is grief unresolved leads, in many instances, to the person engaging in criminal behaviors, which very often can lead to the death of another person. So the grief leads to crime, which leads to grief. I have seen this happen thousands of times, not only as a medium, but as a a criminal defense lawyer. Look at what's going on in the Middle East. All right, let's just, without getting into ISIL, because that's just a creepy, creepy group of people, but like the whole Arab-Israeli thing, okay? Um, Hamas starts shooting missiles in, and I'm not taking sides here, but Hamas starts shooting missiles into Israel. You kill a busload of kids. The Israelis respond by bombing people, and you can lose an entire family in one week. These people are not dealing with grief. They're not realizing that I love my children more than I hate this other group of people. So this unresolved grief is leading to rage and anger and violence, and it grows and builds and builds upon itself. Gandhi once said, an eye for an eye and the whole world goes blind. And the problem is, not enough people are listening to Gandhi. So on a very large scale, in, in, in the Middle East and in other parts of the world as well, grief is leading to the intentional infliction of crime and death upon other people, which is then creating more grief. And the cycle grows and expands and it's like, it's like a hurricane of negativity. So on a much more local level, if you have a child in the family um, and someone uh, close to the child has died or a grandparent or someone, make sure that you do everything possible to address the issues of that child. Find out what he or she knows about death. Find out what he or she is feeling. Um, Take advantage of, of grief share groups at churches or temples. Um, make sure that, that this unresolved grief gets resolved, because the last thing you want is your child turning into a drug addict, alcoholic, and, God forbid, a criminal. Well, and for a lot of criminal defenders, you know, they, they see the same clients coming to them again and again. Uh, they They commit a crime, and whether they are found not guilty or whether they serve time and then they're released. It seems to be a, a cycle for them. Have you found a way with your ability to work as a, as a medium? Have you found a way to help uh, th- those who have passed through the system? Have you found a way to help them break the cycle? 
Hey, a, a story I wrote about that in Never Letting Go, this young guy, um, Tim, came to see me. He was a surfer, you know, ni- nice young guy, squeaky clean looking, and he came to me, and he's sitting, you know, in my office, and I was looking at his his, his record, and I noticed that, okay, there all of a sudden there was nothing, and then about 18 months before there was a marijuana arrest. Then there was a disorderly intoxication. Then there was another, you know, open container of alcohol or something. And then there was the DUI, and that's, you know, the driving under the influence. And while he was talking to me, I started picking up on a female presence, taking form as I could perceive her, and I felt a very motherly thing. And I said, Tim, who died before this date, before the date of your first arrest? And he looked at me, and... He, he looked over his shoulder where I was looking, and he said, what are you looking at? <laughs> okay, and, 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 and I said, who died, Tim? And he said, my mother. And then all of a sudden, he went from the you know surfer guy to start shaking, and the tears came to his eyes. He said, she was a single mom. I was, I was, I was, she was all I had, and ever since she died, I can't handle it. And, and it's just, I'm falling apart. And he goes, and I'm drinking and I'm smoking. And I go, your mother does not want you to be drinking and to be acting like this. And he's looking at us over his shoulder and he goes, you see things other people do, don't you? And then I realized Tim was sensitive to the presence of his mother, but he didn't understand what was going on. And I said, Tim, I need to get you in grief counseling. And so that's what I did. I got him into grief counseling. And um, I worked out a deal also with the prosecution that as part of his probation, he had to do that. And let me tell you something, it made a big difference in his life. And, um, and so I think that when an attorney or, or anybody close to somebody picks up on this, you've got to get them into grief counseling. You have to deal with grief. Women are better um, at processing their grief than men are because women are socialized to embrace and express their emotions. I mean, women that don't even know each other will talk to each other in a public restroom. Okay, <laughs> all right, guys won't do that. You're all like, you know. No, no, no. We stay. We have to make sure there's a stall. Uh, that there's a urinal in between us when we go in. Yeah, there. in between us, and oh my god, and don't look, and, and on all this, and there's all these weird things that you know, guys are like, are so taught to suppress their emotions. In fact, the only emotion which is socially acceptable for a man to express in public is anger. It's true. That's yeah. not a healthy thing. And so by getting into the counseling, you have to deal with your emotions and your grief because no matter how tough you are, it still hurts. It still rips your heart out. You know, guys, there's a reason we got tear ducts. We have a heart. We have feelings for a reason. Now, I'm not saying, you know, run around, oh, you know, like that. But the thing is, you have to realize that you're hurting. And unless you deal with that pain, I mean, if you were having chest pains because it's a heart attack, yeah, you're going to go get treatment. If you're having emotional pain, it is still a very serious condition that has to be dealt with. And, and it's the healthy thing to do. 
because you don't want to spend your life as an alcoholic, drug addict. You don't want to be in relationships which break up or, you know, God forbid you, you hit your, your partner because of some, some rage or anger. And you don't want to go through life being, being miserable. And the only way to, to avoid that is to confront, embrace, endure, and get through the grieving process. Well, in dealing, too, with uh, folks who have come through the criminal system, uh, I'm sure that over, over the years you've also heard uh, some people who have used a lot of the topics that we discuss as a defense. I'm sure that you've heard, you know, the devil made me do it type defenses. And I, I'm sure that you've heard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Does it happen yeah. more often than, than we hear about? Yeah, um, I've, I've done a lot of commentating on shows where people claim that they were demonically possessed and that's why they committed a murder. And th that's a very fascinating topic because, first off, no, no judge that follows the law is going to allow that type of evidence into a courtroom. Reason being <clears throat> is that for a judge to allow that defense would be a judicial recognition of an afterlife. And it could be argued that that would violate the First Amendment separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. So if there's a judicial pronouncement that there is a devil, then there obviously must be some type of spirit world and afterlife. Now, granted, you know, government's always trying to, uh, you know, when I hear these politicians, we've got to get prayer into the courtroom and prayer into the classroom. It's like, okay, let's do some Muslim prayers. Now, how do you feel about that? Okay, so, right, <laughs> so then yeah. that's going to kick off a whole other bucket of, uh, of, of arguments. But there's a reason we have separation of church and state. However, the demonic defense possession is actually an outgrowth of the insanity defense. So if there's not a judicial pronouncement um, that there's an afterlife, the judge could allow um, the defense to say that, well, she was under this delusion um, that she or he was, was possessed by the devil. The, the McNaughton rule is a firmly established concept in Anglo-American jurisprudence, which means that someone is insane if they suffer from a mental condition which it, um, disables their ability to be aware of what they're doing and to logically and consciously make a decision. In other words, schizophrenia, where there's an organic brain uh, problem, um, other types of psychoses where people uh, hallucinate. Um, it, it could be maybe your IQ is so low and your mental abilities are so compromised by different things that you're not capable of formulating um, the specific intent required for like premeditated first-degree murder. So, so when you start um, looking at the demonic defense possession, uh, I mean the, the, the demonic possession defense, it really is a form of of the insanity defense. So mm -hmm. people can use it, but I've yet to see it ever successfully um, utilized. I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer, his attorneys used the mental illness defense, and it didn't work. And if that wasn't mental illness, I mean, a man that, that uh, stalked down uh, other men and, and abducted them and murdered them and then ate them, mm. if that isn't mental illness, I don't know what is. Yeah, exactly. One of the other things that have, has popped up a lot lately, uh, and this is something that I know differs from state to state depending on their laws, but a lot of folks have purchased property 
or uh, there was a case in New Jersey where someone had rented a house and then they claimed to be victims of paranormal activity and that information wasn't disclosed. And, and some states do require disclosure uh, about whether or not a house is haunted. I think here in Massachusetts they don't, uh, but I know in other states they do require it. Is that, a ca- is that something that's been popping up more frequently now, the idea of either purchasing or renting uh, a haunted property? Um, yes, it, it is. Um, something like 26 states, um, you have to disclose if somebody's been murdered or died in a house. And a number of states uh, require reporting if somebody died of HIV in the house. Um, now, what about if the house is haunted? Now, the case you're referring to in Tom's River, it actually ended up on the People's Court eventually. And this couple rented a house and then said that it was possessed by a poltergeist and and there's all sorts of really, you know, um, frenetic uh, spectral phenomenon there and they heard voices and, you know, the whole whole gambit. And once again, um, when this this went to court, both, um, uh, you know, the the people's court jumped on top of this because it makes for good television. Yeah. Um, and the judge ruled in favor of the landlord because there was no sufficient evidence to prove uh, paranormal activity. In fact, even uh, ghost hunters were brought in, and they said, you know, we weren't picking up on anything unusual there. Now, there was a case in the state of New York, and it um, was the Stambolsky case, and if you bear with me for a second, sure. see if I can get the, um... okay, I'm going to paraphrase this one, but the Stambolsky case was um, this gentleman, um, he sold a house, and the people that bought it wanted to have the contract overturned because what happened was, okay, here we go. Pardon me, I just want to get that file open. Okay. The house was um, haunted. And the the buyer went to court and actually had the contract overturned because the house was haunted. But here's what was going on. The seller had been um, having haunted tours of the house. Uh-huh. And he promoted as, come see this haunted house. So when this guy goes to buy it, um, it was not disclosed to him that uh, th- this was a, a haunted house. So the Supreme Court of, of New York held that the vendor, the seller, um, could not de- deny the existence of poltergeists. Um, so that the house was haunted as a matter of law, <laughs> okay, wow. and that secondly, that he had not disclosed a material um, uh, fact. But they also said haunting is not a condition which can and should be ascertained by reasonable inspection, okay. So basically, what they're saying is, you turn this into a sideshow attraction, and you didn't disclose that. Now, whether or not there are um, uh, uh, spirits and ghosts and such in the house. That doesn't matter. Right. You didn't disclose the material facts. So the court really found a very brilliant way of outmaneuvering that. So I think we're going to start seeing more and more of this. I mean, you know, you guys do, do paranormal investigation, and there's more shows, and there's things like that out there. And I, and, and I believe in, in the, this, uh, this sort of thing. So I think that um, 
I think we're going to see more of it. And I think that that's part of the problem that people don't realize with this is, you know, you might be somebody who is looking at a piece of property and you know that it has this reputation of being haunted and you're not a believer in that. So you say, ah, not a big deal at all. I'll just buy this anyway because I'm not afraid of what could happen. But you're not taking into account the fact that this is a known haunted location that people are aware of. Maybe it's been on one of those ghost shows and people are going to be bothering you. People are going to be peeking in your windows and, and trespassing on your property. And that's a, a whole other side of things that you know people don't look at. They're, they're worried about whether or not there's actual paranormal activity. They're not worried about whether or not there'll be people going there to find out if there's paranormal activity. Well, uh, you know, it's, it's also some houses are stigmatized. And stigmatized houses tend to sell for 30% less. So in other words, uh, um, let's say you were looking at a house that looks great, and then you heard that five people were murdered there by a homicidal maniac. Okay. You really want to buy that house? No. Uh, I think uh, I think I think the Lutzes got into that situation, didn't they? But, but. well, um, I mean, yeah, there, there's a lot of people that that get into that situation, and you know, uh, um, would, I don't know if it would bother me. I mean, I'd, I'd want to check out see if there's any you know uh, you know presence there, but um, that's why a lot of these states have these laws which require the disclosure. Now, other states don't. Um, and it makes for, for fascinating legal discussion. Should that be something which is mandatory to be disclosed? And then there's the HIV. Someone who died of HIV, they have to disclose that. Well, obviously, because especially in the, I guess, in the 80s and early 90s when there was no treatment uh, that could keep people alive with HIV, there was such a stigma. But, you know, you can't catch HIV because somebody was in a room that had it. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and so you know that 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 could be that could be ridiculous um, in, in in that sense. So um, what it comes down to is that if the poltergeist activity uh, affects the market value and resellability of the property, then it diminishes the value of the property, and that's a material fact. Um, you know. It's, it's. Um, I think it's going to be an expanding area of the law because the legal system and the paranormal are now colliding with with ghost hunters. You know, you're running around these these dark houses at night, and I don't know why they can't turn on the lights. Okay, <laughs> it's like a spirit's going to be there whether the lights are on or not. And somebody falls down a staircase and breaks their legs. Well, guess what? Somebody's going to be liable for the medical bills, and somebody's going to be bringing a lawsuit. Or what if? You hire a ghost hunting team and say, you know, um, this this house is poltergeist. Can you get rid of them? They go in and they try to clear it. Now the poltergeist activity has intensified mm-hmm. because they aggravated the, the spirits. Well, there are now insurance companies who are issuing liability policies for ghost hunters. Mm-hmm. Most of them are going to be for accidents on the job. But it'd be interesting to start seeing if, oh, my gosh, you intensify the poltergeist activity, so therefore, um, this is a, a legal action. I think it's fascinating stuff. It is, and, and I can tell you that uh, we we have a uh, company called Legend Trips uh, that we run as part of what we do, and we take people to historic haunted places as as fundraisers for the locations, but also, you know, we charge people to come out and and participate in these public uh, paranormal investigations. And I believe the legal terminology is insured up the wazoo 
is, is that a legitimate legal term? But we we carry a, a huge policy for that very reason for anybody that may get hurt within the uh, you know within the setup of of our paranormal investigation. And it went from being something where we had to go to websites and 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 ask for quotes for you know what they would give for a wedding, for a public gathering, whatever kind of we could come to the closest thing for the event insurance, and now you can actually go up and look up paranormal investigation insurance. <laughs> I know. It's, it's amazing. Well, you know, insurance companies are always looking to make a buck off anyone, but on the other hand, there's a need for it. Sure. Um, in, I mean, I know of uh, one situation where some ghost hunters there in, I think it was like a, I think it was an abandoned insane asylum, and um, there's this guy and his wife, and the wife caught this disease, which is in the droppings of bats mm-hmm. and rodents, and it killed her. She passed away, I guess. Yeah. And the, some, some, there yeah. was a, another case that happened locally here to us in New England, in Rhode Island. There's a, a school called the Lad School, which is a place that a lot of urban explorers and paranormal investigators have broken into over the years. And there was uh, apparently a, a science classroom with a bunch of hydrochloric acid still in some of the containers. And one of the idiots that broke in actually burned himself with the hydrochloric acid. And I, I, th- I think if I remember correctly, it was uh, it was in his crotch, and he, and he <laughs> did some serious damage with the hydrochloric acid. However, they attempted to sue the state of Rhode Island, even though they're the ones that broke into the school and never should have been there in the first place, but they attempted to sue the state for the damages caused by that unattended hydrochloric acid. Yeah, and normally in in that situation, the people that are suing are going to lose. Um, Which they because, did. Yeah, yeah, and and as well they should have because you're not supposed to break in. Um, and I don't want to go through the whole legal analysis of that because it's it's you know very law schoolish and not all that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but we look at it more from the fact of they were just stupid <laughs> for for not only doing yeah. that but for. <laughs> Like, I don't know. If that was me, I probably wouldn't have told anybody. I would have been like, yeah, I just burned my crotch off with hydrochloric acid, but I think I'm going to keep that to myself. People are yeah, that's not the type of thing one should be advertising. It could make you very unpopular on Saturday nights. <laughs> so we've actually, we uh, personally, I mean, I know that a lot of people with, with uh, mediumship abilities have been asked to help out on certain cases, uh, especially, you know, cold cases and, and, and need, just needing to find some sort of break. Uh, we actually were approached years ago by a police department uh, asking us from for some assistance from a paranormal perspective. Uh, has anybody ever come to you and asked you if you can use those abilities uh, to help with a break in a case? Um, yes, on, on several occasions. And um, the type of work I like to do is more helping people connect with loved ones to bring emotional resolution mm-hmm. than it is, like, searching for dead bodies. Um, there are some mediums that like to do that. That's not something, even though, you know, with my criminal background, and, I can't, and I'm not saying that I can't do that, but it's just not something that, that I like doing because oftentimes um, it can be very emotionally draining to do that. But it must be uh, a request that you get because people knowing, you know, the line of work that you're in, they probably right. feel, well, here's someone that we can we can utilize in this fashion and somebody we can trust. Well, I had um, military intelligence come to me, an officer, and um, the, the the officer had a connection with the only pilot that was shot down in Gulf War One, 
and he came through and I got all this information and and they wanted the officer wanted to know did he survive the crash and I felt that he did and he was taken prisoner and then he was um, um, brutalized and his body burned long story short about six or seven months after that I got a letter in the mail and it had a newspaper article that um, it was sent to me from the officer, and it was all handwritten. There was no return address. It was all very, woo, you know. Um, but the the uh, fighter jet had been found in northern Iraq. This was in, in Gulf War One, the only the only jet that was shot down. And the handwritten note said, "The things you provided coincide with what we found." And I was like, but, "But what? What? Tell me more!" You know, but but the, you know, there was all very hush hush. So yeah, I have done things like that. Um, I've provided. Uh, I used to be part of a forensic psychic forensic team where we would would do things like that. Um, so so yeah, I, I do that. And people uh, um, do do come to me because of my background in law and in mediumship. Well, and I think too. Uh it's one of those things where, again, people look at it as, as a name that they recognize, somebody that they can trust, and I think that that uh, goes to show that they're at least making strides toward accepting that perspective, but that we've still got a way to go. You know, they're still they're looking for somebody that they feel is on the inside uh, and understands the way that it works, and it, we might be a long way off before it can be something that's a regular part. Because I'm sure that there's mediums who go up and, and try to offer information in mm-hmm. cases, and the police have to say, uh, no thanks. They do, and what people have to realize is that the CIA, KGB, British MI5, the French Secret Service, the Chinese, Korean, North Korean, and Japanese and Australian have been using psychics for the past half century, particularly remote viewers who are capable of seeing things in real time, whether it's across the street or across the country and that over one-third of U.S. presidents, starting with the Lincoln administration, have consulted with uh, psychics. I mean, Abraham Lincoln did. Woodrow Wilson used to meet with Edgar Cayce. Um, You had Warren G. Harding. You had uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, John F. Kennedy, Richard Nixon, the Reagans, um, even the current uh, president have all had psychic advisors. Now, they'll deny this in public. The Clintons were probably the most vocal denial um, because uh, both Bill and Hillary had their own psychics, and then Hillary's thing went, went uh, kind of bad. And, of course, the Clintons did what they were very good at doing, which is denying responsibility for things, and uh, they managed to slide through that. Um, and... If, if this is all such bunk, then why have world leaders been using psychics and mediums? Mm-hmm. I mean, the British prime ministers have been consulting with them. Winston Churchill was real big with this. So there's nothing unusual about turning to psychics. In fact, J.P. Morgan said, millionaires do not consult psychics. Billionaires do. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and that's a great way to leave it for tonight. Uh, our guest tonight has been Mark Anthony, the psychic lawyer. The book is called Never Letting Go. You can get it now from his website, neverlettinggo.com or healgriefwithbelief.com. Uh, you can check out both of those sites and also check out Mark when he's out on the book tour as well. You, you said New York coming up. Anything coming up uh, before then? or? 
Uh, well, New York's in a week, and then I'll be speaking at the Edgar Casey Center in Virginia Beach on November 5th at an Afterlife conference, and I will um, be be giving a presentation and doing uh, gallery readings for the audience. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mark Anthony, the Psychic Lawyer, and we look forward to having you back on again sometime. I look forward to coming back. Thank you, and to everyone, have a happy and safe Halloween. You too. Take care. And I'm glad that uh, everything was able to work out technically. Uh, <laughs> we, we made it through the second hour here, although I shouldn't say anything. we got a minute to go. Right. Uh, but we want to remind everybody that next week will be our annual Bridgewater Triangle investigation show. If you're interested in taking part in that, send us an email, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com. Reach out to me on Facebook or Twitter at Tim Weisberg. Let us know that you want to take part, and we'll find somewhere to stick you for that night. But, again, remember, everything has to be cleared with the authorities, uh, and we have to let everybody know where you're going to be for safety and for legal reasons. Uh, but we will be here in the studio, the three of us, Control Central, while the teams are out there investigating. So tune in for that next Saturday night, and it's going to be a, a fantastic show. It's always our one of our biggest shows of the entire year, so we're looking forward to that. Also, just a real quick reminder again, October 19th, 10 p.m., Destination America, the premiere of Ghost Stalkers, and if you haven't seen some of the clips on the Destination America website, you can just go to DestinationAmerica.com, and you will be able to see a few clips. They took some down. They actually had some up that were a little bit more intense, but uh, you can see what's up there for now. So until next week, for Matt, for Stephanie, I'm Tim. We want you all to stay spooktacular.